side effects. It goes, bo- it goes both ways. It goes both ways. Well, honestly, I, I get excited about this topic. Um, so much of what we are going to look at in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I could do a year-long series. I've put in my formal request to Pastor Steve to put it on the calendar. So far, I haven't gotten an email back. I'm excited about what God has to say to us about the powerful principles found in this chapter. And throughout the message today, I want to tell you some stories of other men who God has blessed me with the privilege of mentoring and discipling so that you can see that God uses this very simple process in very profound ways. And so I've asked some of them to share their thoughts uh, with me by email this last several weeks, and I hope their stories encourage you. The entire passage is on your sermon insert in your worship folder, but if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it and write in it and mark it up. Make sure you remember some things that God speaks to you about. If it's an electronic one, go to the notes section there uh, you know, on your phone and write down what God's saying. Just don't start Facebooking and sending texts. That's all I ask. So we're going to jump right in. And in this chapter... 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul continues his encouragement of Timothy, this young leader. We began in chapter 1 last week as as Alan shared with us what this is all about, why we would even think about discipling and, and mentoring of others. He's speaking to Timothy, but because this is God's inerrant word, he speaks to all of us as well. So we're going to first look at a series of analogies that... Paul is challenging Timothy with of what it means to be in wholehearted devotion to, the, to a task and to the kingdom. He's encouraging Timothy to be like certain groups of people, and I'm submitting to you that in order to be like these groups of people, you need someone to show you the way to do that. And so we're going to take this passage and kind of jump it, maybe flip it on its side just a little bit, and see what we need to be in the lives of other people who God's calling to be like him. Let's start in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, Paul addresses Timothy the same way. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Later in that same chapter, he says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. He refers to Timothy this way in 1 Corinthians 4. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, at the beginning of this letter, he says to Timothy, my beloved child. You see, every child needs a parent. Children need a parent. Paul often referred to Timothy as his son, and he would refer to himself as Timothy's father. Children need to know what it means to be strengthened by God's grace. God's grace, His unmerited favor toward His children, His chosen children. There is spiritual power that takes place when as a spiritual parent to someone, you teach by action what it means to listen to a confession, to forgive, and then to point them once again to the truth. Parents and spiritual parents advise and counsel and correct and train and teach and give instruction and loan money. Well, maybe not that last one. (laughs) But there is a bottom line, I believe, that each of us, no matter our background, get from our family. See, from our family, we get identity. 
Children learn who they are from family, good or bad. You see, the family you grew up in has taught you, whether you realize it or not, who you are. And, who you, and you believe that. And in the discipleship relationship, we learn who we are in God's family. And as Nate just shared, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we can put full confidence, not in ourselves, but in our gracious and great Father. Every child needs a parent. And I submit to you that someone around you needs a spiritual mom or dad to come alongside them and remind them who they are and who their father is. Verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Students need, now you figure out where we're going with this, students need teachers. They need teachers who have been students so that they can become teachers. See, Paul is admonishing Timothy here to take what he's learned from Paul and teach somebody else that so that those people will be able to teach somebody else. This is the principle, I believe, of the Great Commission. The task that we, the church, have been left with from Jesus, to go and make disciples, teaching them. Teaching them scripture and biblical truth and obedience to God's word, even when it's hard. Teaching them how to pray. Teaching them to lead and care for others. Teaching them to share their faith. Teaching them how to listen to the Holy Spirit. Every student needs a teacher. Verses 3 and 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. In Philippians 2.25, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as his brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. And in Philemon, Paul calls one of his co-laborers a fellow soldier. Soldiers need officers. Soldiers need officers. What do officers do? How do they impact a soldier's life? Well, if they're a good officer, they produce soldiers, not civilians. They show how to stay focused on kingdom work, the task at hand. Soldiers have to be taught how to do battle. They must know how to fight, how to keep fighting when the battle is seemingly lost so that soldiers can protect others. You know, if you've ever met a soldier, you know it almost immediately because they have a soldierness about them, don't they? Oh, that we would have a soldierness about us as Christians. This is the picture Paul shows Timothy. You are a soldier, not a civilian. You are in a war for the kingdom. So train up others to be soldiers for God's kingdom too. Don't get caught up in other stuff. One of the uh, men that I work with wrote this. This is very early on, actually before we actually started uh, into a mentoring relationship. He said, you came over to my house to pray over it. My roommate at the time was already in a mentoring relationship with you. We chatted just a little bit after that. I wasn't really sure about the whole mentoring thing. But that day, for some reason, I felt comfortable to share some things that I'd been going through. You have helped encourage me when I needed encouragement. You have helped 
me to process thoughts that I probably never could have on my own and showed me that I do not have to believe the lies the enemy puts in front of me. See, as mentors, we create soldiers. What else do officers do? Officers push. They push past the point that you think you can go. Officers are constantly saying, keep the goal in mind. They are pushing and annoying. But all the while molding men and women into hardcore spiritual soldiers. They're pushing. Officers train. They train in a singleness of purpose. We have one focus. We have a set of weapons we use. And they train in it. And the Bible tells us that there are spiritual weapons too, and we know how to use these weapons of our warfare, the Bible says. They are weapons of righteousness, weapons of divine power, it says in 2 Corinthians, weapons of truth and prayer and godly living and spiritual focus. Officers train. Officers provide an example. See, for the most part, every officer took the same route on their way up the ranks. It's been said that if I'm going to go through a, a minefield, I want the person who knows where the danger is buried to guide me through it. See, I'm, I'm, if I'm going to fight and win, then I need someone who has fought and won. Even if they're wounded, even if they've lost a few battles, they are winning the war. That's who we have to be for others. And it comes in the simplest of ways. Let me tell you one, another story. One thing I've learned is the priority that you put on your wife and two sons. You always answer their calls when they call. And make, now my wife would argue with that, but. <laughs> you always answer their calls when they call and make them a top priority in your life over me and the other guys you mentor. I didn't see that growing up. And it's those kind of little things that I pick up on. I would have never seen that example had we not been meeting. You see, we pro provide an example to others of what it means to be a Christian man or woman. And then officers teach character and honor. We have only one that we're seeking to please. And he seeks our character and our honor. See, it's the one, this passage says, the one who enlisted us. And that's Jesus. You see, we have to, as mentors and disciples, teach what it means to live in honesty and purity and integrity, standing for the un- changing truth of God's word. We must teach men and women to simply follow Jesus. There is no other choice. We have to teach character and honor. Pastor David in Anonos sent me a note this week and I did my best to translate. He said, you have often said to the people of Anonos, rather than trying to be a better person or a, a better son or a better brother, just get closer to Jesus, and that will make you a better everything. He said, this has touched my life. Get closer to Jesus, and I'll be a better everything. See, we train in character and honor and what it means to follow Jesus. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. All right, now you've got the pattern. Athletes need coaches. Athletes need coaches. Coaches who can train them in skills. Coaches who motivate. 
Coaches who teach them to abide by the rules. We've seen in our country the last few years what it means when an athlete doesn't abide by the rules, right? And so much of this, I believe, is brought on in the mentoring relationship as trust is built. And I believe that trust is built through shared stories and shared time and shared experiences. See, I believe that you can waste time with someone and it be life-changing. One of my favorite things about the Olympics is watching the interaction between coaches and athletes when a medal is won. Now, I don't know if you've ever paid attention, but the next time the Olympics come on, pay attention to this. They have sheer excitement and joy. Why is that? Here's why I believe. Because these two people have been in the trenches. See, they have been there together in the early mornings and the late nights together working to get it right. I believe there are thousands of unplanned coaching moments where God shows up and is suddenly doing his work that you didn't plan on, that it wasn't part of what you, it wasn't on your little note card that you stuck in your Bible and said, this is what's going to happen today. It's in those wasted moments. Let me tell you a couple stories. I remember a drive together in the car on our way back from a New Life men's encounter. My heart was beating a million miles a minute, but I knew God was telling me to share a specific sin in my life that had been buried for years and never spoken of. Not one person in my life knew the depths of what I had done, and the enemy had used it to create a stronghold of fear, and I didn't even trust myself. Because of the relationship that we had built, I knew I could trust you to walk alongside me as we allowed God to transform me. I am thankful to God for having you in my life through that journey and many others. Here's another one. I was at PB's house. That's what some people call me. <laughs> Tell you a story. Pastor Jay and I spoke at the same event a couple years ago, and they billed us as PB and J. <laughs> I was at PB's house, and he, he pointed to a painting on his wall. He explained to me how that painting had a purpose that was intended by the painter, its creator. And how I couldn't come in and change that painting for my own purpose. And the same goes for my own life. That I can't change God's intended point of why he created me. The crazy part is that God not only created me for his purpose, but then he paid for me. That thought goes through my head on a daily basis. You see, athletes need coaches. Verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. All right, let's see if you can get this one. You're not going to get it. Farmers need, I know, right? I had to work on this one. I worked hard. Farmers need almanacs. What in the world do you mean? Well, we need someone to tell us what's coming, how to plan for the future. We need someone to share with us when it's going to get tough. What's the best time and season to make decisions and how do I do that? When does, it, when does the dark seem to close in and when is the sun going to shine again? We need to be reminded that there is reward ultimately for the hard work involved Patience for the harvest, as we see in James 5. 
patience for that harvest and for personal growth. You see, if you have someone who is a generation or two behind you on the journey, whether that is an age difference or a spiritual difference, you have something to give. It's called experience. Each of us is a living, breathing almanac. I'll tell you another story. I was once under the power and accusations of our oppressor, not living with accountability or in community. Although I was free to leave that bondage because Jesus broke that awful power in my life, I was strangely afraid to leave its familiar grasp. God drew me into accountability with you, and I am now free from lies I lived in because of the truth that you spoke over me. This has brought me so much confidence and joy, and I love and live like a new man. We are almanacs. One more quick story. My spiritual coach and mentor got me through literally the most difficult season in my life. Because of God working through him and our relationship, my marriage is still intact and is growing every day. And I'm a better father to my children. I have focus and purpose and realize God's love for me on an entirely new level. I thank God for the men that he has placed in my life on a regular basis. And I hesitate to think where I'd be without those relationships. And then, because Paul is a stream of consciousness writer, I have decided, he, right in the middle of this series of thoughts, he stops and says in verse 7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think this over, Paul says. Stop, think about this. I want you to really get this. A further reflection is going to shed more light on these truths. Paul is saying that it is the Holy Spirit who will put in you an understanding of these thoughts so that a deep desire for this is built in you. So he gets us thinking this over, and then he says, verses 8 through 10, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Think this over, Paul says. We must be able to endure suffering. I guess you could even, we could put this in, his, in the categories and say that current sufferers need past sufferers. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember his sacrifice. Remember that the gospel impacts despite our own personal suffering. Paul saw his own issues. His own suffering is far less important than the lives of people who had come to faith in Christ as a result of the preaching of the gospel. He believed that his pain built inner strength. It's interesting. 2 Timothy is the last of Paul's letters, and it provides, I think, an important final picture of Paul. His situation was bleak. No longer could he really look forward to fruitful ministry, and frankly, most of his friends had left him. Yet Paul remained confident. He was not ashamed to suffer for the gospel. He was willing to endure everything, he says, for the sake of the elect. He knew that he had been faithful to Christ and that Christ himself was faithful to him. Paul had confidence that the one who in the past had rescued him from death would rescue him through death for eternal life. You know, I think that it's in his suffering that I believe really cements this idea of building into the lives of others. It's not easy. 
It's often hard. It's often frustrating. But in that frustration and suffering, we become a, an example of real life. Not the perfect Christian, not the person with all the answers, but the real, imperfect, struggling, flawed example of God's grace. And then Paul decides to take a, a big break in verses 11 through 13. This is in rhythmic form. Most scholars believe it's probably an early Christian hymn. So it's as though Paul pauses in verses 11 through 13 and says, you know what? Let's just look to Jesus. He's the point of all this. Anyway, let's just worship for a moment in song because of the gospel. Let's remember what the whole point of our growth and efforts are in becoming like Jesus. Sing this as you push into knowing Jesus. And Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What do we learn? Well, that the believer is identified with Christ's death and resurrection. Isn't that our ultimate identity? That Jesus gave his life for us. And because he gave his life, we can have life. We also see here the believer's faithfulness is to be rewarded that there's a long-term point to all this. And that Christ's faithfulness is not dependent upon our faithfulness. You see, he cannot contrary to his own nature, and so he is always faithful, even when we are not. While we were sinners, he what? He died for us. He gave his life for us. So the song's over, and Paul gets back to his original point. In verses 14 through 19, remind them of these things the char and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who ha has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, and all the people from Awana recognize that verse. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, and as Pastor Steve would say, yikes. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, baby names if you're looking. <laughs> they have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now there's a lot here, but here's the point I want to simply come to, is that workers need supervisors. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Throughout his letters, Paul speaks of others as either God's fellow workers or workers of lawlessness and evil. You're on one side or the other. Well, our aim as Christian disciple makers is to produce an approved workman, approved by God. This requires effort, an, un, an unashamed approach, and a correct handling and understanding of the word of truth, God's word. In the original language, this idea of handling the word, or other translations say correctly handling, means to cut a straight road. 
You see, if we obey and follow God's direction, the path is not twisting and confusing, but rather straight and clear. The difficulty comes, the road gets twisty when we start to question and disobey and do it on our own. The twisting comes when we, we come to a decision and say, maybe I'll do this my way. And we get off and it gets into the bushes and the high weeds and gets confusing. And yet the mentor comes alongside and says, it's important to remember that God's solid foundation stands firm. Let's go this way. This is the straight way. See, this, the worker needs a supervisor to keep the process simple. Simple but hard at times. But when we begin feeling like we're in the high weeds and twisting all over the place, what's happened? We've gotten away from the word, most likely. Let me tell you a story. One of the guys wrote, the thing that comes to mind for me specifically is you helping mentor and guide me to learn how to forgive, specifically during a relationship breakup early in my faith. As a brand new Christian, I think that that time was a make or break moment for my faith. I would either continue on my path toward Christ or turn back to my old life disillusioned. You helped me to realize the pain and forgive and thus allow me to be free from the bondage and the hate the enemy wanted me under. I was able to pray for her in obedience and God gave me the feelings of love and forgiveness after I obeyed his word. Subsequently, I was able to continue chasing after God with all my heart rather than slipping away. Without the guidance of someone seasoned, oh, I hate that word. Okay. Without the guidance of someone seasoned and knowledgeable and passionate about the Lord, I don't know if I would still be following Christ. Every worker needs a supervisor to keep things straight. And then in verse 20 and 21, now a great house, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Now, not good or bad, just different uses. There's a different between, difference between the cut crystal vase you put flowers in and the bucket you wash your car with. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. We see the same idea of being vessels in Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Vessels need repairers. We all have our issues, our pasts, our areas of struggle with sin. It is from these that God brings healing and from that healing, usefulness for his glory. You know, even as Paul talks about Timothy, and any time, many times when he references him, he, he seems to characterize Timothy as he did in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7 that we looked at last week, as having a spirit of fear. And Paul felt it necessary in 1 Corinthians 16 to ask the church of Corinth to receive Timothy in a manner that would set him at ease. And throughout his letters to Timothy, he had to exhort Timothy not to let anyone despise him on account of his youth. 
not to neglect the spiritual gift that he had been given and that he had received, and not to be ashamed to speak out boldly for the gospel. You see, like most of us, Timothy was a cracked pot too. But we're told to be holy and useful and prepared. And so we need to be washed and cleaned and repaired. We know what, it, what needs to be cleaned based upon light shining on us. The more light, the more dirt that's seen. You wonder, well, it seems like the closer I get to Jesus, the more messed up I feel. The dirt can only be washed away through continued scrubbing sometimes, and cracks and imperfections can start to be repaired and sealed up, mended and healed. This is the ministry of the mentor, to repair cracked vessels that God wants to use. I'll tell you a couple more stories. One time in which my life was impacted and my walk for Christ increased was after I had given in to temptation. I had sinned and was eaten up with shame and guilt. Now, Brian has always encouraged me to live out the command of James 5, 16, to confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. And so I confessed and as best I could repented to God and then talked things through with Brian. He helped to remind me of who I was in Christ and then encouraged me to walk in that truth. Instead of running and hiding from God, I have learned to run to God instead. And I needed a physical representation of Christ and his overwhelming grace. Another story. If you've ever had Pastor Brian as a mentor, then you know about the dreaded last 10%. I have learned that for mentoring and discipleship to be effective and to spur on genuine growth, it takes a relationship with consistency and vulnerability. From our first meeting together, this is what Pastor Brian began creating a foundation for, urging, practically demanding consistency and vulnerability. Relating to vulnerability, he said, for this to work and for you to truly see rich growth in your walk with the Lord, you have to be willing to get down to the last 10%, sharing that last but very heavy load that you don't want to let others carry with you, not even Jesus. He said, do you promise to do this? And I said, knowing that inside I never really would, said, yeah, I'm all in. And so we continued to meet over the next year and being consistently loved and me consistently faking vulnerability and knowing I was missing out on genuine growth because 90% is enough, right? I mean, come on. Little did I know that the Lord's constant pursuit of me and Pastor Brian's determination toward my spiritual growth would finally soften my heart enough to surrender that last 10% to Jesus and let him carry it for me. I am experiencing a growth in my love for the Lord like never before, and I am running in the freedom of letting Jesus carry all of my load. We're supposed to be repairers of God's vessels. And so Paul says, be ready. Be ready as a mentor and a mentoree. See, it doesn't matter how far you come. You need somebody who's ahead of you on this journey, encouraging you. So he finishes this chapter with these verses, starting in verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now we could spend several weeks just on these verses, but there's just one point I want to make. That it's simple. <laughs> There's a lot here. I just want to remind you to be available. And you can start here. This is, this is your homework. Start with these verses. Get together with someone. And start to unpack the commands in these verses as you share together. Ask yourself questions like, well, where are you in obedience to these? Have you, what about these youthful pass, passions? Are, are you fleeing from those? Or are you pursuing righteousness? How's that happening? Are you growing in faith and love and peace? Are you, you caught up in foolish, ignorant controversies and quarreling? Are you, are you able to teach? Are you able to share your, your faith with somebody else? Or are you enduring evil that's coming at you from all sides? What, what needs to happen to change you? Now look at the outcome. Here's what the point of this is. Look at the outcome. To come to their senses and escape the snare. The snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. Be ready as a mentor to step into someone's life. Be ready as a mentor to have someone step into your life and challenge you. You know, I heard the University of Texas motto this week it is, What starts here changes the world. Here's what I'd say, New Life. What starts here changes the world. You say, what's happening at New Life? Are, are, these, are these three weeks of messages on this because nobody's doing this? No. Matter of fact, last fall there were two training sessions for women. Forty women of all ages came together to learn how to be mentors. And The idea there was not to create a mentoring program, but to create a mentoring culture. And that they wouldn't be paired up but they needed to be on the lookout for women that they could mentor. And Lori Brown told me that she knows of about 20 partnerships that have come out of that. There's young men's mentoring. It's in your worship folder this morning. You're a man and there's somebody, a young kid in older elementary or middle school whose dad isn't around. And you can be trained and step into a mentoring relationship with them. There's ongoing mentoring of men and women at all ages. It's, it's not a program. You just ha we have to seek one another out. Where do I look, Pastor Brian? Well, how about across the living room in your small group? Be on, be on alert in your ministry area. Who, who do you minister beside every week? Get involved in children's ministries or student ministries or young adult ministries. It's fish in a barrel. They're all over the place. And from these guys age down, who doesn't want somebody just to care about them and see how they're doing and check up on them and open the Bible and say, let's, let's talk about what God has for us. And what are you struggling with? How, how can I help? Go to men's and women's events. Meet people. 
Always volunteer to serve in an outreach event. Go change oil two Saturdays from now. Guys, guess what? Three hours of hanging out with guys. Mm, okay? See, meet each other. Work in a LoveWorks event. Here's one. Sit in a different spot in the auditorium. Now, I thought about right now having everybody stand and move to a new location, but I decided not to. But next week, I don't want to look out at any of the same faces in the same places. You see, it's anything and everything with the purpose being to connect to someone else for the purpose of spiritual growth. You see, we are our brothers and sisters keepers, are we not? It's not a program, it's an ongoing lifestyle. It has to be going on everywhere and all the time. It has to be happening in this place. And if you are already being mentored, then your mentor better have told you to find somebody to mentor. As Nate said earlier, whether you are 50 years, you've been a Christian 50 years or five minutes, there's somebody that you can encourage, somebody that you can build up. See, from this place, we can change the world. Jesus can change the world from this place. One life at a time. This past week, I watched a speech by Admiral William H. McRaven. He was talking to the graduates at the University of Texas. And he was talking about the principle of multiplication at one point in his speech. And I don't know whether he knew this or not, but it's a biblical principle. It happens as we make ourselves available and obedient to the truths of this passage. Now look at this. Now I've taken what he did and I've adapted it to us. And just for the sake of being easy numbers here, let's just say, let's pull it down a little bit and say there are a thousand people in this building this weekend. And if there are a thousand of us in this building this weekend who will commit and start to mentor 10 people in our lifetime. 10. Now some of us are getting old enough, we, we better hurry, okay? <laughs> but if we would commit, if a thousand of us would commit to mentoring 10 people in our lifetime, who we would teach to mentor 10 people in their lifetime and so on, in four generations we would have mentored and reached with the gospel 100 million people. Four generations, that's 125 years. Some of us are going to be long gone. Most of us will be, I hope, I hope most of us will be long gone. But don't we want to pass on the gospel to the next generation? Remember what Alan told us last week, that the, the Christianity is one generation away from oblivion. We have to pass it on. Let's go one more generation. Five generations, 150 years, we reach one billion people from this church in this little suburb that sits on the edge of a medium-sized city in one of the smaller countries in the world, a little dot in the universe. Jesus wants to use us to change the world. And it starts with you. Ten people in your lifetime so I'm going to ask you today if you will determine today to impact 10 people with the gospel and then help them grow so that they can do the same in their life. Will you determine to be available and usable and humble and obedient? Will you simply take people with you on this journey? And I'm submitting to you that we don't have to pray about this.
that when God gives a command to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey, that's all we need. So I'm going to ask you, if you will determine today and commit today to impacting 10 people in your lifetime, would you stand? Now I want to do two things. I want you to look around this room, and somewhere in this room may be the start of your 10. Now look at what could happen in the next generation. Hey, maybe we all only get five. Oh, that's only 50 million people. God, I pray over those of us who are standing before you. Some of these folks are already mentoring. They're already impacting lives, and yet I believe they're standing because they desire to impact lives even more. God, I believe that some here have 50 people in their lifetime, or 100. God, make us all faithful. God, I pray that you would take this moment, make it an altar moment of, that you can point back to and, and convict us that you stood and said you would make yourself available to impact 10 people in your lifetime. To change this world one life at a time, walking beside someone else. So God, commit us to this task in Christ's name. Amen. Our prayer partners are here, and I'd